0: I like children's stories more and more recently um, because I have children and we read them stories. And I find that the children's stories uh, are messing me up lately more than the, maybe it's because I read too much theology or or whatever. Um, But I I read a book for my kids a few weeks ago before bed called um, You Are Special by Max Locato. And if you haven't read Max Locato, Uh, I really encourage you to do so. He's one of the great Christian storytellers, not just for children, but adults. And it's this wonderful book with beautiful illustrations. And the gist of the story is this. uh, You are loved. You are enough because God made you, period. Um, It's not about your skills or your looks or your abilities. It's got a super simple lesson. The illustrations are beautiful. My kids liked it well enough. Um, And by the last two pages of the story, I'm like ugly grown man crying. Um, And my kids thought it was funny. They're like, (laughs) what's wrong with you, dad? Um, So while my kids were laughing, my head was spinning uh, because it's a simple lesson, right? Like, God loves you. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. We sing it to my kids every night. Uh, But sitting there, guy in my mid-30s, I was struck by the question, what if that's actually true? What if God loves me because He made me? And He doesn't love me based on how well this sermon is about to go? Uh, he doesn't love me based on how well my, my marriage is doing, or how family devotionals, whatever that is, is going. He He doesn't love me based on how on time our renovations are here at the church which I don't know if you guys, I think about that all the time. The the implications of God loving you because he made you flooded my mind and were frankly overwhelming to the point where I'm weeping in front of my children. Have you ever wondered why children's stories are so powerful? Uh, Have you ever wondered why you keep watching The Lion King? Or did, did anyone else go rent the new Beauty and the Beast to watch it after the kids went to bed? See, there are simple lessons in children's stories, lessons that are, are meant to be easily digestible and remembered by children. Um, but, but these simple lessons, they set our imaginations on fire and reveal an incredible depth to these stories, so that we return to them through the years and receive new and deeper lessons. So You Are Special by Max Locato can have a lesson for my children and a lesson for their father. The story of David and Goliath, which we're going to consider this morning, is one of the great children's stories of all time. It is pervasive through culture um, it's one of the few stories that people who've never set foot in church have at least an idea of what it's about. And it's got a very simple lesson. With God, nothing is impossible. Beautiful lesson. Our culture has taken that lesson and tweaked it. And, and we've got uh, you know, kind of cliches like, it's not, it's not the size of the dog in the fight, but the size of the fight in the dog, right? Or never discount the underdog. The bigger they are, right? There's so much more for us in this story than that. Those lessons are true and they're they're good, uh, but there's so much that we often miss. And I think part of the reason, one of the worst things that happens to us as we grow up is somewhere along the line, we put to death our imagination, Uh, We think dreaming, imagining, pretending, envisioning ourselves in different places is somehow child's play. And so adults live in this very linear, very rational, very black and white world, and we miss so much of what's going on in the story. So I want to try and tell the story for you again, and I want to give all of you adults permission to turn your imaginations on. Uh, Try to remember how to dream, how to envision yourself in a different place, because we don't we're not just going to need that to understand this story, but we're going to need to be able to do that uh, to live in a world where giants still exist, and, and maybe not literally like they did in this story, but, I mean, anybody lose... You don't have to raise your hand for this. Uh, but did anybody lose some sleep this week? One guy over there. Uh, you didn't have to raise your hand, but I appreciate the honesty. Um, you know, what... what Robs your peace or robs your joy? What is the situation that you're facing and it just seems like the odds are insurmountable? You know, maybe maybe it's something real obvious like stage four cancer. There's no treatment left. What do you do with that? Uh, Maybe you have an estranged sibling or you know your marriage is probably not going to make it. Maybe you have your teenage child look at you and say, Dad, I don't love God the way you love God. There are giants that we're facing. Uh, And all of us at some point in life will find ourselves uh, with our back against the wall, so to speak, feeling like there's no way out and we don't know what to do to move forward. And, And this is the situation that Israel's facing in 1 Samuel 17. They're facing an old enemy, they're on two sides of a valley. On one side is the army of Israel, and on the other side is the Philistine army. Uh, Historic enemies of Israel. Earlier in 1 Samuel, they stole the Ark of the Covenant, which to them was where God's presence was. This is where God's promises were. This is where our power is. The Philistines stole the Ark of the Covenant and essentially took it on a joyride, moving it all around, doing what they wanted with it. And and now, in 1 Samuel 17, uh, there's a literal giant standing in front of them, taunting them for 40 days. Goliath is nine feet tall. His armor weighs 125 pounds. The tip of his spear, just the the tip, weighs 15 pounds. Go to a gas station and buy the big bag of ice. And that big bag of ice weighs just a little bit more than the tip of Goliath's spear. And he's marching up and down this area called no man's land. That that place in between two armies where if you go there, you're probably going to die. And he's taunting God. He's taunting the armies of Israel. And he appeals to an ancient form of warfare, representational combat. He says, give me your best. Give me your best and we'll fight. And if he wins, you win. And if I win, we win. As goes your champion, so go you all. And it's worth pointing out This kind of situation is exactly why Israel demanded a king. Earlier in 1 Samuel, they say this. They say, there shall be a king over us who may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. 1 Samuel says that Saul, the first king of Israel, was head and shoulders taller than everybody else. He was a warrior. He was handsome. He was Israel's giant. He was head and shoulders taller than everybody else. And they wanted a king who would go and fight their battles for them. And so Goliath is marching up and down and all eyes are on Saul. Surely our giant will go and fight their giant. Surely our king will come and fight for us it's not the case look how Saul and everyone else reacts to Goliath 40 days of this you wake up for breakfast and Goliath is out there chattering away at you taunting you insulting you and your God you're going to bed at night and you hear this giant bellowing across the field and this is the result when Saul and the Israelites heard this they were terrified and deeply shaken the king is terrified and deeply shaken Meanwhile, back home, there's a dad whose three sons are fighting in the army. He's got three boys who are in Israel's army, and dad's worried about them. He's worried, do they have enough supplies? Are they getting cold at night? Are they feeding my boys well? We can, we can feel this, right? You can imagine what this would be like. So what does he do? Well, he's got a son who's too young to be in the army. They, they trust him to watch after the sheep and the goats. And he sends his son, David, to say, go check on my boys. Go check on the family, son. Make sure they've got what they need. Our best guess is David is somewhere in the neighborhood of 13 or 15, somewhere in there, young guy. And he shows up to the army, shows up to the camp where his brothers are. And he hears this giant chattering away. And he's bewildered that everyone is just okay with this. He sees Saul and the army terrified and letting this guy go on and on day after day. And so this boy turns to the king. Think about that for a second. This boy turns to the king who's head and shoulders taller than everyone, who's their greatest warrior, who was you know, anointed by Samuel, loved and chosen by the people. And David looks to his king and says, don't worry about this Philistine, I'll go fight him. You ever heard a teenager say something ridiculous? (laughs) Right. Okay. Try to imagine this, in a room full of seasoned warriors, the best of the best that Israel had to offer this never-held-a-sword-before-teenager, this boy who is an afterthought, suggests that he will fight this giant. Don't be ridiculous, Saul replied. There's no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You are only a boy, and he's been a man of war since his youth. David keeps protesting, though. Keeps telling the king, I'm going to go kill this sucker. And eventually, the king relents. And we don't know if it's because he has this great faith in David. To me, I mean, what's a shepherd boy to a king? What's another reckless teenager to a mighty warrior in the head of an army? If you want to go kill yourself, man, what's it to us? So... The king says, okay. But then he does what he thinks is best. Uh, He gives David his own armor. Imagine this for a second. Imagine if you're 12 years old and your dad is like, you got a job interview. I'm going to give you my best suit. Y'all remember Ron Paul, the politician who always had a jacket on that was like three sizes too big and his shoulders were hanging back. I liked Ron Paul, but he always didn't have clothes that fit, Uh, which makes it hard to be presidential, I guess. Uh, The the king takes his own armor and puts it on David. And and there's rich irony in the text. Earlier in the story, uh, it describes Goliath as having a helmet of bronze, a coat of mail, and a long sword. What does does Saul put on David? A helmet of bronze, a coat of mail, and his own long sword. There's only one way to fight a war, I guess. If you're going to fight Might as well do it this way. But but David, probably too young to know better, probably too, I don't know, uh, naive to worry about offending the king, refuses. He looks at Saul and he says, I can't go in these. I'm not used to them. So David took them off again. He picked up five smooth stones from a stream and put them into his shepherd's bag. Then, armed only with his shepherd's staff and sling, he started across the valley to fight the Philistine. The text goes on to say, you know, Goliath starts taunting David, and in response, David runs at the Philistine. He doesn't just be like, okay, we're going to do it. He runs at the Philistine, and you probably know how the story ends. David gets a sling, however you sling, I don't know, and he sinks a stone and the giant's forehead, and then he takes the giant's own sword to remove his head off his shoulders. With God, nothing is impossible. With God, giants fall at the feet of shepherds. But what else is going on here? What, is, what, what are maybe a couple of the deeper lessons that we can learn from a story like this? One of the first things that strikes me it has to do with the nature of courage what What is courage? And as I look at this story, it seems to me that courage comes from trusting that God will make a way. Saul and Goliath both misunderstand what courage is. Um, they both had worldly eyes, not godly eyes. They saw things from the ground perspective, not from God's divine perspective. and for them, Battles were won with swords and spears and strength. Goliath could not imagine a world where his strength was not enough to the point that he's willing to taunt God. He's not doubting God's existence. He's just saying, God can't stop me. For Goliath, his self-reliance produced a small view of God. He was strong enough. He was tough enough. And he called that courage. Saul thought battles were won with swords and spears too, which is heartbreaking given who he's supposed to be and what God had done for the people of Israel up to this point. As we've looked at Saul the last few weeks, we see he was a man that wanted to be celebrated. He was a man that was worried about reputation and image and the applause of the crowd For him, his self-absorption produced a small self. He didn't know who he really was. He he didn't rest in God's provision for him or his anointing or his presence with him. And instead, he he wanted to be what he thought everyone else wanted him to be. And so he looks at a giant and is terrified. He'd self-deceived. To the point, like, how, how... confused or blind you have to be for a grown man who's a foot and a half taller than everybody else in the, in the army? How blind you have to be to think your armor is a good idea for this little boy? David believed in a God who would make a way. Listen to the source of David's courage. This is what he says to Saul, why David thinks he should be the one to go fight. It's tough. Listen to this. I've been taking care of my father's sheep and goats, he said, which you got to wonder if the rest of the room was like, we know, why are you here, right? This teenager shepherd, what are you doing here? Listen, when a lion or a bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club and rescue the lamb from its mouth. If the animal turns on me, listen to this now, I catch it by the jaw and I club it to death. I have done this to both lions and bears, and I'll do it to this pagan Philistine too, for he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. So look, he's not self-reliant like Goliath, okay? He doesn't say... I mean, can you imagine if you'd caught up a bear in your hands and beat it to death that you might walk around being like, hey, man, bear killer here. You know what I mean? Like, I worked that thing. But that's not what David says. He doesn't say, hey, listen, I can kill bears. You don't know me. You don't know what I'm capable of. I will go take down this Philistine. He doesn't say that. He's not self-absorbed either. He's not worried about his image or how he's coming across. Do you realize, like, look at what David's doing here. For David, being a shepherd was enough. He didn't, you know, try to embellish or act like he was something great. He's like, well, yes, I'm a shepherd, but I'm more the protector of my family's flock because I'm such a great warrior. You know, he he doesn't church it up. You know what I'm saying? He's like, no, yeah, this is what I do. For David... He could imagine a God who was big enough to use a shepherd. What does he say? So this is what I've been through. God rescued me then. You're going to rescue me now. True courage is the result of faith in the living God. It's this capacity face our fears rise up underneath them and say God will make a way I can't see a way out at no point do we see David saying listen Saul I'm going to sling this giant and use a sword to cut off his head I don't know if David had a real plan here but what you what is clear is this posture of David who says who I am and what I have is enough. The courage to say, I don't need the king's armor. I know the whole army is afraid. This won't work for me. For me, if I'm being honest, we all like, to be like I'm like David. Listen, if you were David, you'd know by now, okay? You're not David. you're trying to find who you are in the story, it's not David. <laughs> for me, I'd have been like, I can make this work. Or I'd find a mirror and be like, look how tough I look in the king's armor, right? I'd be worried, what's the the army going to say about me? David's own brothers make fun of him for this. But for David, he didn't need to fight on the world's terms. Saul and Goliath, there's only one way to win a battle. David says, I want nothing to do with that. I I don't need to play by your rules. God's back is never against the wall. And if he's with me, Neither is mine. True courage is the result of faith in the living God. It's not a counterfeit courage, trying to act like you're something you're not, you're tougher than you are, or that you have what it takes. And, and with that then, the, I guess the second lesson that I feel like God's trying to teach me in this is that faith is fueled by imagination. The Bible is a strange religious book in light of all the other religions in the world because it does things that other religions don't do. Um, Like what, pastor? Like having the teenage, moderately handsome, but overlooked shepherd be the one who goes and kills the giant, not the mighty king with his shining, gleaming armor riding in on a sword on a horse with the sword. He's not quite the ugly duckling. I don't want to downplay, says he good-looking. He could play the guitar so the girls liked him, right? Um, he's not quite the ugly duckling, but he's not this obvious hero. Remember when uh, Samuel, the prophet, told Jesse, David's dad, I want to come talk to you and look at your boys. Like, we don't know why. It's a big deal, though. It'd be like if the president calls you and says, hey, I want to come and talk to you about your children, right? Like, it's a big deal that this was happening, And they didn't even invite David to come along. The army is on the move and David is at home. He's an afterthought. And try to think of the years that David spent alone in the wilderness with goats and sheep. And don't don't raise your hand now for this, okay? Because I don't know if your boss is in the room. How many of you have a terrible job, you know, or a boring job? where you clock in, and you're just staring at the clock like, good grief, what is the point? You ever think David had days like that? Here I am, day 307 of just me, the sheep, and the goats. How easy would it have been for him to check out and get bitter? My brothers are in the army, no one invites me anywhere. I hate these sheep. <laughs> I didn't think that would be funny. But instead, we see a David who is faithful to his job, right? He shows up and does the boring job that most of us would prefer not to do. But David does it. Think about what would have happened if David had seen a lion and said, one less sheep. Would that not have been a... I mean, for me, it's like option one, fight the lion. Option two, let the lion eat that sheep, right? Like, I'm an option two guy, But, but look now, David's imagination was wild enough to believe that his boring days mattered. His, his faith in God moved him to believe that there was a purpose, even when he couldn't see it. And so David's faithfulness to ordinary days, as it turns out, prepared him pretty well for facing this Philistine Goliath. David's experience with bears and lions fueled his faith. So he could look at Goliath and say, I'm not really sure what's going to happen here, but this will not stand. God has rescued me before. God will rescue me again. And just as his experience fueled his faith so he could move forward, I think his story was intended to fuel our imaginations for one who was to come there's something really fascinating that um, it's, it's never stuck out, stood out to me before in this text. If, if you go home and read it from your bulletins, you'll see that it says, Goliath's armor was made of scales. Now, if I had started the sermon and said, there's a story of a giant serpent taunting God and threatening his people, what might you think I was talking about? We know... Do we know any old, accusing, threatening serpents in the Bible Does that ring a bell to any other stories that we've talked about or that you may have heard in our culture? Like, Goliath is meant to stir our imaginations with thoughts of that old serpent, the devil, and his mightiest weapon, death itself. Years later, one of David's descendants would be born in a no-name town, a place that was an afterthought, to the point where the surrounding people, when they hear about him, say, can anything good come from Nazareth? That place, like David, he had a normal job for many years and lived an ordinary yet faithful life. In 1 Samuel 17, everyone thought what David was doing was ridiculous and it was a sure defeat. Everyone but God and this young boy who trusted him. Years later, as Jesus was nailed to a cross, everyone thought it was a sure defeat everyone but God and his son who trusted him. Like David, this is so crazy. Jesus took the giant's own weapon and used it to destroy him. Representational warfare. As the champion goes, so go the people. David wasn't just fighting for Israel. He was fighting as Israel. Jesus comes not just to fight for us, but as us. And Jesus embraces death, not just for us, but as us. And in so doing, he defeated it. Just as David's victory secured the victory for all of Israel, so too has Jesus' victory over death secured victory for all who trust him. Because three days later, he rose from the dead and said, y'all, this was the plan. Your greatest weapon, we've actually now used it against you. As the writer of Hebrews will say, Jesus endured the shame of the cross, endured the cross, scorning its shame, turning its purpose on its head. He takes the sword of the giant and uses it to cut the giant's head off. Israel no longer lived in fear of Goliath after this day. So too, we Christians no longer live in fear of death because the giant's head has been cut off. So what does this mean for you? What does it mean if our, if our greatest enemy, the giant of death, has been defeated? Not by your skill or strength or reputation. Not because you're Goliath. You got all this money and all this power and all this whatever. But it's been defeated by a true champion, the one who stood all alone and faced death for us. What would it mean if you believed that who you are is enough for God? What could it mean for you if you believed that what you have is enough for God? What would it look like if your faith is not simply a someday faith? In our theological tradition here, which you're like, what is that? I'll talk about it later if you want. Uh, Most of us see the work of Jesus as a someday thing, right? well, we're just going to get through this because we know when it's all over, we'll go to heaven. What if we didn't have a someday faith, but a today faith? A faith where we could look at what's in front of us today, the giants we face today, the burning questions and real problems we have today and approach them with a heart of faith. The secret here for David, when he's anointed by Saul or Samuel, we're not really sure that he knew what was going on, but the spirit of the Lord came upon him. And whenever you see that happen in the Bible, people get courageous. So you've got the disciples in the book of Acts hiding and afraid for their lives. And then the Spirit of the Lord comes on and they, like a high school musical player or something, they bust out of the doors and take to the streets singing and shouting and dancing and letting everybody know and facing accusations and standing before courts and saying, kill me if you got to, but I can't keep quiet. What happened? The Spirit of the Lord came upon them and gave them courage. Some of them died. But they had the courage to look death in the face and say, Then saying then in my story. You can't hold me with this. I'm not going to live in fear of that anymore. Kill me or not. Do you know the God who uses the improbable to do the impossible? Do you have that kind of imagination? I love one little scene in the story. It's the image of David all alone in the middle of the two armies. Like he's just told the king, I don't want your armor. (laughs) This is wild. I'm going to go out to battle, but I'm not going to use anything that we use to fight. He says no to the king. He's in no man's land. Philistine shouting at him. And what does David do? He kneels down to a stream and starts hunting for stones. Can you imagine what the rest of the army thought? This is not going well, right? Like, (laughs) He's not wearing the armor? Well, what's, what's he doing? Is he getting his, he's in the stream. He's looking for a stone. He's in the stream. His imagination was big enough to say, this is what I have. This is what I know. And I believe that it is enough for God. He didn't know how but he trusted that God would make a way for him and so now we know how our story ends death cannot hold us eternal life is waiting for us pleasure at God's right hand forevermore and we have giants facing us now and if our faith is in Christ The promise is we have the spirit of the living God inside of us in a much more palpable, permanent way than David ever did. What does that mean? It means God can use the improbable to do the impossible. There's no more room to say, I'm just a stay-at-home mom. I'm just a mechanic. I'm just a high school dropout convict or whatever. There's no room for that kind of self-dismissiveness in the kingdom of God anymore. And have you ever noticed that God calls us to remember this, to remember the gospel and be grounded in it in a way that requires our imaginations? That he takes something ordinary every day and infuses it with his divine message. On on the night he was betrayed, Jesus takes a loaf of bread, which they would have seen every day. He says, this is my body broken for you. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the imagination, this is a loaf of bread, right? Just bread. But Jesus is saying, When you see this, I want you to imagine my body broken for you, which was confusing to them then, but wasn't confusing to them a few hours later, what the broken body of Jesus looked like. When you see this bread, imagine what I've done for you. He gave thanks and he broke it. And he said, Take and eat this. Remember what I've done for you. And after the meal, he took a cup of wine. Again, just wine. It's what they would have drank at most every meal. It says, when you drink this, I want you to imagine my blood shed for you. Because this is what makes you safe with God. This is what seals your relationship with God. So that every time we would eat, we would take a moment and imagine in our minds the simple message that God loves you, period. Because He made you, because He saved you, not because you're beautiful. Not because you've got some wonderful athletic ability or you've made all of this money, but because he's looked at you and said, You are mine. So, Christian, you have the spirit of the living God living inside of you. The same spirit that hovered over the waters of creation, the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, the same spirit that landed on David and empowered him to kill a giant is in you. What does that mean? Take courage. Take courage, Christian. Are you scared? That's the whole point, right? The Christian who comes and says, I'm not afraid of nothing. It's like, you are a liar. You're a liar. Courage is the result of trusting the living God to make a way. And so what is is it that you're facing? Maybe it's just the courage to look at your own death and know this is how it's going to go for me. But it's not how my story will end. Don't hide from your giant Christian. Turn and face it. Face it and trust God. If you aren't a Christian, look to Jesus. Here's the good news for you. You don't have to rely on yourself anymore. And I just want you to know that at least the Christians in the room who've been around the block a few times, we look at you acting like you have it all together and we see right through it. Because we're all a mess. We're all like Israel, shaken and terrified, standing on the sidelines, hoping that someone will come so we don't have to fight. And what I want you to hear is Jesus has come, and he's fought for you. He's fought as you, and if you'll trust him, he'll save you. His love is available to you, and this whole game of trying to be impressive and prove yourself can come to an end, and in Christ you can find your rest. Our tradition at Sojourn is to come forward and rip off a piece of bread and dip it, and wine or juice. Wine will have a piece of twine wrapped around it, and we'll have gluten-free elements to my left, your right. I'll pray for us, and then Christians, you can participate in communion as you're ready. Let's pray.